be in our seats by 10.15 so that uh, we can start promptly since we have so, so little time. Um, and I know that sometimes it gets us by surprise, but um, maybe we can make that effort to, to do that. It's good to see all of you guys here. We'll pray, and then we'll start our lesson. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us together for Sunday school this morning. We pray that your spirit be present with us. Father, pray that we would be able to grow together as we study uh, this area of, of theology, of what your Bible teaches, your word teaches concerning things that are um, future to us. Uh, we pray that we, this would be edifying for, both, for all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, I know it, sound, it feels weird to just start right off the bat, but again, because of our time is so short, we, that's all we... We need, that's what we need to do. As you remember, we started uh, two weeks ago a series on eschatology, the study of the things that happen future to us. Uh, as we saw in the past, the, uh, um, the, so a lot of people think of eschatology being things that happen at the coming of Christ, but actually has to do with everything from death on, not just uh, uh, you know, at the coming of Jesus Christ. And that's the outline that we are using. And we started considering death last week. Uh, and then today we're going to move on from death to what happens between death and the coming of Jesus Christ. We're starting looking at that today. Uh, when, uh, the, when the Bible Presbyterian Synod met for the first time in 1938, that was the first time our denomination officially met, the uh, Westminster Standards were adopted as the doct- doctrinal standards of our denomination. So uh, the Confession, the Catechisms were adopted as the documents of our uh, denomination. And uh, we did something that uh, no, no other American body had done before. We actually changed them. But to that point, since 1706, uh, the... The documents had not been changed uh, when the American, when American Presbyterians as a whole adopted the Westminster Confession Catechisms. They changed the chapter that said that the civil government was over matters of discipline in the church, so it separated the church and, the, and the, uh, the civil government that way. But it wasn't until 1938 when the uh, Bible Church began that we actually amended, amended just means changed, uh, a few uh, chapters in the Confession and a few questions in the larger Catechism, and we did that uh, because the one of the reasons for the formation of the Bible Presbyterian Church was the desire to have a um, Presbyterian body that held to a premillennial second coming of Christ. And if you don't know what the word premillennial means, we're going to address that later in the series. So our first synod amended the standards, the Westminster Standards, to conform to that desire. So they changed chapter 32, paragraphs 2 and 3, chapter 33, the title in paragraph 1, and then the larger catechism questions 82, then 84 through 90 that we're going to be using in our series. So they're they all amended to teach a premillennial return of Christ. And that's the position of our denomination, and that's the position that I'm going to be teaching from here. And it's the right position, too, so that you, just in case you're wondering uh, that. 
at the same time, uh, at the same synod meeting, when that was all done, the following resolution was also approved, and that's a very important thing for us to keep in mind, okay? Because, uh, well, we'll, we'll make clear, it, this, this was approved by that very first gathering of our denomination. It says, whereas this general synod has adopted changes in the confession of faith and the larger catechism, which bring our doctrinal standards into harmony with the premillennial view of the blessed hope, the second coming of glory, our Lord, and whereas... Although we hold this view to be taught in God's word, we yet recognize that there are sincere Christians who hold to other views of the events which shall accompany our Lord's return, but who nevertheless are, on with, uh, are one with us in receiving the system of doctrine taught in the Bible and stated in our standards. Therefore, be it resolved that the General Synod declares that subscription to our doctrinal standards upon the part of all office bearers shall be understood as leaving them in our churches and members free to hold any eschatological view which includes the visible and personal return of our Lord to, to earth and which is not otherwise inconsistent with the system of doctrine of the Bible and the confession of faith and catechisms of this church. So the, the, uh, we changed to teach a premillennial return of Christ. And if, again, if you don't know what premillennial means, I'll, we'll talk about it later, a later lesson. But at the same time, we also said that the intention, this is not a non-binding document, by the way, but the intention was to allow for freedom, liberty in the, um, in the officers and local churches, as long as the, the eschatological position would... Uh, believe in the physical return of Christ and the physical resurrection, and that would not contradict the Westminster standards. And uh, no, it's interesting because initially that would also not allow for dispensationalism. That's, that was the one position that would, wouldn't be allowed. Uh, and if you don't know what that is, again, we'll talk about it later. And then another position that would not be allowed is what's called uh, uh, hyper-preterism, uh, the idea that all the prophecies of the Bible have been fulfilled already. And we'll talk about that also at a future time. So that's, that's the context in which our denomination was, um, was established. Uh, in 2008, I was attending a conference at a, 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 of a seminary in the South, and the professor uh, giving the lecture on eschatology, uh, a, a well-known historian, said that in his opinion, the Bible Presbyterian Church is the, honest, the only honest Presbyterian body. Because instead of just ignoring what the confession says, we amended it to say what we believe, instead of just ignoring it. And we, even though he didn't agree with our position, he, you know, he thought that was the honest thing to do. Don't just keep things in the book that you don't believe. Change it. All right. So to, this morning, Lord willing, we're going to look at all these little words that are on... Uh, the screen this morning. This is chapter 32 of the Westminster Confession, paragraph 1. As far as I know, no Presbyterian body has, uh, has changed that. All Presbyterians should uh, believe in what this particular paragraph says. And it says that the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. And I, the, the, the days we live in, I have to say what I'm going to say. Men here is an inclusive word means men and women and children, boys and girls, all included here is the, 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 the generic men. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, 
immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. So what's the summary of this teaching? The body after death waits for the resurrection. The soul continues to live after the person dies. So the existence is not limited to the physical world we live in. Uh, elect souls are perfected in righteousness, go to heaven before, uh, and behold God. Non-elect souls go to hell and are tormented. And then it says that there's no other place such as purgatory for souls to go. It's either heaven or hell, and that is that. There's no third option. And there's no reincarnation as we saw last week as well. We don't come back as a bug or as a horse or as a cow or whatever. It's given to men once to, to die and then judgment. So the first thing it teaches is that the body goes into the ground. No, the body go, to go to the ground part is straightforward, right? I don't know that anybody wants to dispute that that's what happens to people when they die. Now, it does not require the burial of the body. That's not what's being taught. This just means that the body stays behind the physical world. And um, so it doesn't require a burial of a body, which means, as I see it, cremation is fine as long as it's not a mystical sort of experience. You know, you don't have the uh, shaman playing his little drum as you spread the ashes over whatever. You know, so cremation is not forbidden in the Bible um, there. Any questions on that? All right, and then notice uh, that the confession teaches that the soul goes back to God. That's what it says. And it doesn't specify righteous or unrighteous. It says that all souls go back to God. So, and the soul of the righteous and of the unrighteous belong to God. So they return to God, and we get the soul of the righteous going to heaven and belonging to God. The part that we're not so familiar with is the soul of the unrighteous also belonging to God. And the soul of the, but that's true. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, it says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit returned to God who gave it. Talk about man's existence in general. So even the soul in hell belongs to God. Not just a soul in heaven, but a soul in hell also belongs to God. Any questions? I wonder if I can attempt to speak any faster than I... I don't think I can. I probably will sound like I'm speaking in tongues if I do. The Bible speaks about this, this period between our death and the resurrection in several different ways. It calls sometimes Shoal. If you read the Old Testament, often you're going to find, particularly if it's not the King James Bible, you're going to find that word, which just means pit, grave, death, underworld. Sometimes it's parallel to the word death in, in Hebrew as well. And this is the place of the departed. In many cases, both good and evil, especially when it's referring to the grave. So that, that's, that's what it is. Uh, it's just the pay, pay, place of the departed. Uh, an equivalent of it is Hades, uh, which is the, the equivalent of Shoal. Is the difference is that one is Hebrew, the other one is is Greek. But it's the place of the departed, death, dead, sometimes used for good, sometimes used for 
for bed is just where the dead go in general. The word paradise is also used to describe this, this particular state between now and the resurrection. It comes from uh, actually a Persian word for, for garden. And it's you know, usually initially to refer to the garden of Eden. Eden. Only the, the righteous goes there. The unrighteous doesn't go to paradise. And in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, remember that discussion that Paul talks about knowing somebody who went to the third heaven and saw some things uh, there and received some revelation from God? The third heaven is also equated with paradise in that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In, in the book of Revelation, in the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, says the tree of life is in paradise as well. Uh, so that's another thing that's there. Another place, name for this time, this, this, that between death and the resurrection is Abraham's bosom. Uh, we read that in Luke 16, that's where Lazarus is, while the rich man is in Hades in that particular place. Any questions about these first four terms? Doug? The um, Roman Catholics take, take Sheol or Hades mm-hmm. and have invented purgatory out of that. Is that just bad? It is. Uh, so in, in Greek mythology, like if you were, if you were to read Homer, for example, the Hades, would, uh, and it's mostly from Hades, not from Sheol, and from Aristotelian philosophy, Hades would have several levels, like, and almost like Dante's Inferno. And in Greek mythology, you could jump from one level to the other and redeem yourself out of that. So that's kind of the philosophical structure from Greek, Greek philosophy and the use of Hades in ancient Greek literature. Now, in, in, in Koine Greek, which is the Greek of the New Testament and the Septuagint, Hades is not, never used that way, not even in secular literature. But the, the main doctrine of purgatory comes from a passage in Second Maccabees, which is an apocryphal book that's not part of the Bible, but they consider it to be part of the Bible. Right. Any other questions about these four terms? That's because that's not all there is. There's a whole bunch more that we're going to be uh, looking here. This period also is called heaven. Though it's rarely used, we use heaven so much for this place where people go after death, but the word heaven is not used so much for, in the Bible for, for that um, period. It could be used for air, sky, space, or a, a, a Hebraistic metonymy for God, and heaven and God being used as synonymous there. And in the New Testament, it's usually used to describe the place where God lives, where the angels uh, live uh, often used as the heavens instead of just heaven. So most of the time in your Bible, in the New Testament, you read the word heaven. In the original language, actually heavens there. It's one of those mean, meaningless details that I give you often. Uh, and, and it's sometimes used in the church fathers, so outside of the Bible, as a place for which Christians go at death. Uh, the closest you can come to that in the Bible is uh, Revelation 6 and 4. Uh, and in New Testament, the heaven is viewed as a place of blessing. Another term we use is hell, and that's the word Gehenna. There um, it comes from this place outside of Jerusalem, the, the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. That's where the big dump was in town. And what happens if you put layers after layer after layer after layer of garbage on top of each other? What, what happens? Uh, propane, uh, uh, methane, 
builds up and fires come up. So this was a place that was always burning and never being consumed. That's kind of the, uh, the idea. And that's the picture of, of hell in um, the New Testament. It's, it's traditionally the site of, of the last judgment. Hell in the New Testament is the final f- form of, for the wicked. And it's used quite a few times. Another title is the Lake of Fire, which seems to be apparently the same as Gehenna or hell there. And then one that's only used once in the Bible is Tartarus. But it's not translated that way. Is in, is in um, Second Peter, where it's used as a verb, where Peter says that they are cast down to hell, those angels who have sinned against. So um, those are the terms used for this period between death and the resurrection. Any questions? All right, let's keep the fire hose going. Uh, <clears throat> it describes the souls in heaven as, we're just going to talk about the happy today and the bad luck next Sunday, Lord willing. Uh, happiness, talks about the happiness of the souls in heaven, the happiness of the righteous in the, uh, in the eternal state. It says that they are freed from sin. So the souls in heaven uh, in, the eternal, in the intermediate state are free from sin. They are freed from misery. Because there is sin and there is misery. Things that we suffer because of living in a sin-cursed world. Uh, communion with Christ. And they are waiting for the resurrection. That's what's going on there in heaven. And we... Be, I, the American church for, for the last 150 years has become what in history has uh, called Gnostic. And what I mean by that is the idea that somehow the physical is bad, the spiritual is good, and the emphasis is being placed on this period of the souls in heaven as being what we're looking forward to. But the Bible teaches that what we're really looking forward to is the resurrection at the coming of Jesus Christ, where we are going to live physically as perfect uh, beings before Christ, because we're created to always be physical beings. So... The, the heaven now is only desirable because it's temporary. It's not how God designed for us to live uh, forever. Um, how, how do we see that these things are, are true? Well, we can look at the passages in the Bible that describe how, what the souls in heaven are doing. For example, in Luke 16, it says that Lazarus is being comforted in, in heaven, in Abraham's bosom. In uh, Luke 23, talks about the thief going to paradise on that day. And we saw the paradise, that place where God dwells. In Philippians 1 and 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that he's looking forward to be in that place. Remember Philippians 1, 21, For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And in verse 23 he says, I'm kind of torn what I should do because departing, being absent from the body is far better than being with you. But I guess for your sake I'll stay I mean, that's my version of what he's saying uh, there. Uh, in Hebrews 12, uh, the, the spirit that talks about spirits or souls made perfect in heaven. So you see these things happening there, freed from sin, freed from misery, communion with Christ, waiting for the resurrection. Any questions on that? All right, how do... The, so what is this existence? How do people exist between their death and the coming of Jesus Christ. How how's that, does that exist, existence look like? Well, the, the righteous dead in heaven are often described as souls or spirits, which is the same 
thing, so they're not described as bodies and so on. And yet, pronouns and nouns are used to, of them suggesting personality. People in heaven are called he or she or they. They're not called it's. So it implies personality. The personality continues in heaven. Uh, and also the Bible teaches us that this period, this intermediate state between our death and the resurrection is only desirable if temporary. For example, in Luke 16, Lazarus is viewed as resting, not yet actively worshiping and so on. In Revelation, Revelation 6, 9 through 11, the souls of, that's a description of the souls of the martyrs in heaven. And it says that they are closed, yet they are waiting for fulfillment of God's vengeance, told to wait a little more. And they ask, they ask question, how long do we have to wait for the resurrection? You know, so they're not just sitting there playing their harps, sitting on clouds, being super happy, which you know, there's blessing and happiness, but they're longing for that resurrection. And they're asking, how long is this going to continue? How long till we are united to our bodies? In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5, Paul um, says that he doesn't want to be naked, describing the period between his death and resurrection. But he wants to be clothed again with his body because that's what God intended that to be. And it's important that we, we understand that the state of the soul after death is one of conscious existence. Some people teach that your soul goes to sleep at your death and then is awakened at the resurrection. That's not the case. Both the souls in hell and the souls in heaven are conscient of their existence. Now, Paul speaks as, of it as being at home with the Lord and something to be desired above the present life. The martyrs of the church are crying out for vengeance of the persecutors of the church in Revelation 6, 9. They, they are actively doing stuff in heaven, not just sitting around or sleeping waiting for the resurrection. Uh, we are eternal beings. We are we're everlasting beings, we should say. We have a beginning, but we don't have an end. We're going to last forever, live forever, either in, in eternity with God or eternity in hell apart from God. Any questions? Uh, we're going to go to Dustin. Uh, I have two questions. Yes. So I would say if those ghosts are real, because I think it comes from a particular presupposition of ghosts being what's portrayed as ghosts today, I would say no, they're not. Period. However, or whatever word a six-year-old would, a five-six-year-old would understand as however, there, are, there is a spiritual world and there, is, there are beings that are active and so on, but the dead don't interact, generally don't interact with the living, Right? If angelic beings that might interact with the living, but the dead don't interact with the living. Uh, that's very clear in Luke 16, where um, the, uh, uh, the rich man asks for Lazarus to go back and tell the brothers what's going on. He says, mm, it doesn't, doesn't work that way. He can't cross from here to there, and so on. Okay, second question. Mm-hmm. The response is, you know, we ask saints or we ask the dead to pray for us. 
Correct. Yeah. Well, so they see saints, technically they see saints as mediators between you and Christ, right? And then Christ, again, goes on your behalf to God. That's the, the technical theology. In practice, that's not what happens. They, they actually pray, they're often praying for the saint to do something for them in this life, right? So you have Saint, saint Patron of Marriage, Saint Anthony. It was interesting, a guy who never got married, lived on top of a, of a stake in the middle of the desert for his whole life, but he's saint patron of, a, of, of marriage. Um, the, I, I think passage that says that, that there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ and Timothy, uh, the, the fact that it's given to man once to die and then judgment. And the theology, that theology is based on the thought that saints were so good, so good that they did extra good works more than what they needed. And there is these extra good works that allow them to have more access to God than we do. Right? And that's easy to show from the Bible that there is no one that does good. No, not one. Right? So that's the doctrine of super arrogation. The idea that they do so many good works that there's more and that can be used to help people get to God. That's easy to prove from the Bible that's not the case. Um, Lois. I want to Correct. But you are also teaching that um, the physical body, which is corrupted, decayed, mm-hmm. is going to be resurrected Correct. and joined back with the soul. Correct. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Yep. Andrew. So just in time. That was good, Lois. I need these little softballs to, you know, my self-esteem to be built up. <laughs> so good job. I'll give you another list of questions later. For <laughs> Andrew. So to wrap up Dustin's point, because I've heard that from several Roman Catholics, mm-hmm. what Dustin just said, you're saying, call him out and say, no, your church actually teaches a lot more Correct. than this, that this is just equivalent of going to a brother. Correct, yes. Yeah, because the reason that you can go to the saints is because they are so good that they did extra credit, and you're trying to use their extra credit to get to Christ. And that's easy to show that the Bible teaches that not. So in my opinion... It, with our, when talking to Roman Catholics, and do apologize with Roman Catholics, it, the big, best thing is to put them where they have to decide, am I going to actually obey, uh, listen to the scriptures or to the church? Put them where they have to make that decision. Because often they hide behind, no, what the church teaches is just a development of the scriptures. There's no contradiction from what the church teaches to the scriptures, just more revelation or development of what the scriptures teach, but you can say, no, look, A and non-A cannot exist at the same time. This, this cannot be one thing and the contrary at the same time and cause them to have to make a, a, a choice because that's always usually where they hide behind, that the church is just developing what the Bible says. All right. Any other questions about what we talked about here this morning? Yes, Keith. We recognize other people in heaven? Um, probably it seems it, there's no explicit teaching on that, um, but the uh, somehow the rich man knew that that was Lazarus, and somehow uh, you know he knew that that was also Abraham, so that's a possibility. Yeah. But we not the reason we want to go to heaven is not because we're going to see uh, Grammy or Auntie or whatever; it's because we're going to be with God. That's really. 
What? And oh, Louis, since you say, uh, what I showed is not the catechism, is the confession, chapter 32, paragraph 1. Any other questions? We amazingly have three minutes left. So, all right, so the plan then is to continue next week with uh, talk a little bit more about hell, the reality of it, uh, and then we're going to start moving towards the uh, talking about what I believe is a future tribulation to our time. Then I, uh, what I believe the Bible teaches is a, a post-tribulation, a coming after the tribulation of Christ, a return of Christ after that period, and then what I believe is a before the millennial kingdom return of Christ. I think that the scriptures teach that. None of that's going to be discussed now, only in the future. So if you have a question about what we talked about, what I just said, yeah, right, because we're going to talk that in a future lesson. <laughs> yes, so. No, no, I said in a future lesson. You go back, go back and listen. Go back and look. Exactly. In the beginning, I said in a future lesson, we're going to cover that. So listen to the podcast and you'll see. By the way, all these lessons now are on the new podcast we just launched this week called OBBC, OBPC Lessons. You can listen to them there. Risa. Last week, there was not a lesson. There was not a lesson last week. It was the intermediate state. <laughs> the, 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 two, the two lessons. All right. Let's pray. And we'll, we'll, remember, we'll take a 15-minute break and be back to worship. Father in heaven, thank you that you're good to us. We thank you that you gave us your word that we can study about what happens uh, next. And we pray that these things have an impact on how we live now. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.